Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast. Today's special episode is all about how to build a company culture that helps your business to win. To this end, I was very lucky to be joined by John Fay and Edward Gordon Lennox of Delta V Partners to help me dig deeply into the subject. John and Edward are experts in the field who are much in demand across all sectors and in multiple countries across the world. Luckily for us, they like working in the insurance sector. Listen on and I think you'll quickly understand why. In insurance, particularly the London wholesale and international markets that I know and love so well, we haven't always been the best at embracing change. In fact, that's a real understatement. So much so that many feel we have allowed ourselves to fall visibly behind other sectors. I think this has partly been down to an aversion to or fear of outsiders and consultants who we often feel don't understand us or are just coming to spend our money. While in John and Edward, we have people who absolutely talk our language and know how to get the best out of us. They don't talk in jargon and they are very down to earth, practical and pragmatic. They're a bit like us insurance folk, really. John and Edward are going to show us the ropes in plain English so you will be able to get your head around this topic and understand all the key themes. Then to make it even more practical, we'll hear from an industry practitioner who has gone through this process on more than one occasion. Steve Hearn, CEO of Corrent Global, needs no introduction. In fact, I got to know Delta V because they listened to the recent podcast I did with Steve where he mentioned the work they'd done. So, with Steve's appearance, we'll top off the theory with straightforward advice on what to expect when building a culture in practice. I spoke to Steve just a few days before the announcement that Corrent was going to be acquired by peer intermediary group Ardonna. Clearly, Corrent has been doing a lot right. And given Ardonna's propensity to keep many of its individually acquired brands intact, it looks like there'll be a fair chance of Delta V's work being carried through and perhaps spread throughout the wider enterprise that this major piece of wholesale broking M&A will create. We'll then go back to John for the final word. We all know we are in a period of unprecedented change that shows no signs of slowing down, and that some businesses are already differentiating themselves because they have robust but flexible cultures that equip them well for thriving under such circumstances. If you want to learn how to best equip yourself for future success, listen on. The next 40 minutes are an absolute goldmine of information. Enjoy the podcast. John and Ed, why don't you introduce yourselves, tell us a bit about Delta V Partners, what you do, and how you got the idea for the business. John. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us on your show. Really appreciate it. About 17 years ago, we set up the organisation. And uh, previous to that, I would spent uh, 15 years in the IT industry with IBM, working all over the world in enterprise software. And I'd also done a lot of voluntary work, helping people arguably less fortunate than myself. And it inspired me to try and uh, work with people more. And I decided to leave IT and go into the people business. And the name Delta V comes from my geek nature of as an Apollo kid growing up and admiring those astronauts. And uh, Delta V is the term in orbital dynamics in terms where you change velocity to in order to achieve a, a certain di- direction and uh, hit the moon effectively. So Delta V is all about getting to the moon. So I thought that'd be a good positive name for the organization. And we've been working, as I say, for the last 17 years with numerous organizations in insurance, in banking, broader finance, uh, retail, construction, and uh, government infrastructure organizations as well. Well, John, actually, somebody told me that you almost ended up starting out your career in the insurance industry. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's very true, Mark. That's very true. 
back in 1990, I interviewed with Willis Faber and I never thought I had a chance of getting through. And funnily enough, I, I got shortlisted and I got this letter and I was at Sunderland Polytechnic at the time up in the Northeast, a brilliant academic institution. And um, they um, invited me down to London and down to the old headquarters, which I do believe is now a, a private hotel. Very nice hotel. Yeah. And uh, interviewed there and they very kindly offered me a role, but I um, decided to join IBM instead. So maybe that's me in trouble for saying that. I don't know. Well, no one ever got in trouble for joining IBM or hiring them. <laughs> that's right. John, you get to work across loads of different sectors, as you said. I'm sure what everyone listening to The Voice of Insurance would like to know is where does insurance rank? Where does insurance fit into this wider world? And which sectors could it learn most from? I know a few people that might be listening to this, so I need to be really careful with what I say. But uh, I have to say, honestly, there is no leader in across all industries. All industries can learn from each other. Insurance has some amazing uh, customer experience, capability, relationship management, detailed knowledge, trust, all those good things. I think that uh, diversity and inclusivity is a, an area that retail is very strong on. I think that the Lloyd's market itself wants to develop that capability. And I think that's a really healthy future for the broader market of Lloyd's. And so retail is very strong there. Construction is very strong on health and safety and that kind of care for the individual, care for the people that work for them. But uh, I think insurance is very strong on many, many areas. And it's an organization that is looking to develop itself. And I think with a greater sense of purpose coming out of COVID and an increased focus on resilience and care for their people and a broader, diverse population of people working in the Lloyd's market is only a good thing. Well, Ed, it's not as if insurance is in some massive cultural crisis. Would that be the right summary to say that there's lots of strengths, but we could learn from other places? Yeah, Mark, thanks. And thanks again for having us on. It's a real opportunity. And as John said, there are so many different markets facing so many different challenges right now. And I guess just to be clear, our role is not as industry experts, but rather to be really curious about the opportunities and challenges facing the industry at the moment. And it seems that there are some significant ones. It's a huge market. It's worth, I think, around six trillion right now and growing ever bigger center of gravity moving out towards the Far East as well, which companies are having to adapt to. John mentioned what's happened over the last 15 months, the whole acceleration of trends driven by COVID, digitalization, the tech world is something that the insurance industry is having to really focus on, both front and back of office. The customer experience is going to be different. Do they need the whole relationship thing as it has been traditionally now? Or is that the right thing? You know, of course, they're moving more towards being risk partners, perhaps, rather than just getting the best deal for in individual transactions. The whole humanization thing as a result of COVID has become very real. So if you think of diversity and inclusion in particular, I think it's probably fair to say, Mark, that the insurance industry has a little way to go in some of those areas. I've got friends of my children who frankly won't join companies that might insure an oil company or something like that. So there's a lot of change there that they've got to start to focus on. And I guess also this whole business about dynamic working, you know, the blended approach, both modernizing their own approaches but also being very very clear as to how teams in particular operate in that sense so male dominated market a lot of esg challenges a lot of technical challenges where individuals have probably spent a lot of their careers in the industry and therefore had perhaps little other experience as well using your experience with other sectors how serious is this challenge 
it's not quite an existential one, but certainly the industry is aware that it has a lot of work to do. And you mentioned diversity and inclusion, and we also know that certainly coming up very, very quickly has been ESG. What's your level of seriousness in terms of the level of urgency you think that there is around the cultural change challenge in insurance? You know, 82% of employees believe that companies should now have a working and motivational purpose. We believe that purpose and values are, if you like, the signposts to creating that culture that enables so much of what COVID has accelerated. I think, you know, it's fair to say that with 82% of people wanting a purpose, if we think of our own lives and our own team's lives and our own organisations, if we can really define the star over the stable, what we're seeking to do and how we do it, then what we do becomes less important. It's very important indeed, but organisations thrive by being very clear about why and how they do something rather than just by what they do. So I think it's become even more important, Mark. No longer can an organisation have a purpose or a vision or a mission or a set of values on a website that are simply there to tick a few boxes. They've got to be ingrained within the culture of the organisation, lived and behaved and believed to the extent that they're also measured. And it seems that the insurance industry has got some way to go and has got to react. It's a lovely opportunity to react effectively to what's happening in the market, the demographic and the social changes that John talked about before. It's really interesting you mentioned something like purpose because the typical insurance listener would say, oh, that sounds like one of these sort of big jargon words that consultants would use. So there, what you're really getting to the point is that everybody in the business knows what the organization is all about and they have no doubts that what they're doing, where they fit into what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, just to, to add to what Edward said, I think the other thing that uh, we need to be resting of is the millennial and the generation Y they care dramatically about ESG. They care dramatically about the organization's values. And Ed mentioned the point about his daughter. I think in any 20-year-old, 30-year-old person, it's very, very much more important perhaps than it, than it may be to, to myself. I'm in my 50s. And it's an opportunity for organizations to really attract talent. And equally, if they don't display what they're all about and what they stand for and why they stand for what they stand for, perhaps they may miss out on top talent. And so, and it has to be genuine. 100%. Just can't be a slogan, can it? No, and, and that's it. It can't just be words on the wall and someone's been to a hotel and had a few beers and come up with a slogan. It's got to be well thought through. It's got to be well socialised around the organisation and therefore agreed. And more importantly, to Edward's point, acted upon and measured. It's not hard to do. It just takes time. And it actually shows a tremendous amount of respect for your colleagues if you ask their view on things. And we just generally find that organisations that are defined by a purpose are generally better motivated and better motivated people tend to win in sport and in business. I think this embedding of purpose is a fundamental point here because you can't just have a purpose on its own. It's actually got to be linked to the organisational structures. The effort has to be aligned, whether it be the strategic effort or the cultural effort, have to be brought together in order to ensure that the purpose is noticed, recognised, believed, measured alongside powerful values and that crucial psychological safety within an organisation driven by the leader's leaders behaviors so it's not just about having a purpose you know i think we'd like to reiterate that it's, it is about aligning the whole effort whether that be strategic or indeed cultural to make sure that the purpose and values and the strategic intent all combine to create forward-looking powerful motivated organization 
John mentioned about employees loving being asked to help build the culture of the organization, being asked to help decide what the company stands for and, and what it does. But you also mentioned the importance of leadership. Is the leadership the most important part of this? Does it really have to come from the top down in order to get the buy-in from the whole organization? What's the most important part of that equation? There are many leaders, maybe even listening today, who think that their responsibility is to have all the answers. And that couldn't be further than the truth. And whilst it starts at the top with the commitment, the understanding of the outcome, how long it's going to take, what the investment requirements are, what the potential outcomes and benefits are, it is actually the experts within the organisation that are going to drive the culture and the solutions and the answers and the flexibility and the adaptability that gets the organization to a great place. So yes, it is the leaders. They have to understand it and sponsor it. And of course, it's important for us to start at that very high level. But as soon as you get that understanding, it's about committing emotionally people within the organization to the opportunity. And that's where the power of this opportunity is. We would traditionally take let's call it 100 people from within the organization around the globe at different levels and different arms of the business and really shake that opportunity to really tease out all the things that perhaps have never been said within an organization or never properly understood by the leaders. And we're seeking to get to that truth in order to create a baseline from which we can develop really powerful ambition. That creates an accountability of high performance because these people have created this environment. We are what we are in our environments, that we're a product of our environments. So if we're creating this environment, whether that be A, B, C, or D, or X, Y, and Z, that's been agreed by the organization, and therefore you can hold people accountable then to that performance level that you ask for. And if you look at great sports teams, let's look at the All Blacks, who are the best in the world at setting a culture for performance. Everyone's accountable to the values of the organization and because it matters on the playing fields and it matters in business. And that's the benefit of engaging people in this process. Because people have bought into it, because they've helped set those standards, then they've got no excuse to say, oh, you know, this was something that was imposed on me from somebody on high. Correct. It's the left and right field. And you can people can play in the left and right within the boundaries. But when people step over boundaries or events may go across the boundaries, then we've got that reference to draw back to. So to summarise a bit, it's got to be top down because the leaders really got to buy into it and help start the process. But then the leaders got to understand that they can't know everything and they need to get down, to let everybody in the organisation at all levels really contribute to this so that then they can really buy into it. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, Mark, I think it is. And I think there's a second stage here is that what is it that allows the leaders to then be held accountable to avoid stepping in too early or to not go on letting people have their say. You know, change is pretty constant these days and we've got to let the organisation live and breathe, be psychologically safe, have their say, innovate right from the start and all the way through. So the values, purpose and values often brought together, the values become that amazing tool by which leaders can hold themselves to account at the same time. And one of the things we're quite proud of is making sure that we help the organization define those boundaries around values that really do hold the mirror up to leaders and the organization all the way through. What's the best way for leaders to get staff at all levels to really get engaged with one of these programs? And perhaps you could run us through it. You've done work with Willis and Corrent in the insurance sector. How long does it take and, and how do you really get people engaged with it without them feeling like they've been press ganged into something, for example? 
you know, whilst we have a, a kind of, let's call it a process, I, I'm not very good on that word myself, but it is a very flexible one because, of course, every organisation is different. We've worked with Big W down in Australia. We've worked with um, what is now the Very Group up in the northwest and one of the earlier and biggest retail mergers. But they're very different beasts. And the start point is the same, though. And as we've touched on already, to get the leader or the leaders and the board engaged in the opportunity and understand the value of purpose and values and alignment and the value of culture, that old saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast, getting them to understand that is fundamental. And that commitment then allows us to help them think about the best way of enabling the thought process. I guess there's a lot about return on investment as well. And, you know, we've done some work to get to a point where the board will understand what the risks and opportunities in their own context are to make it much more accountable and tangible in that respect. I guess the next thing is then really important, Mark, to make sure that we've picked those people in an organisation who really can get engaged from the start. It's no good going to them saying, this is what we're going to do with you. We actually need to involve them right from the start and say, in a kind of exploratory phase, whether that be online or whether that be with exploratory events to understand how best to do this within their organisational context. I guess, you know, two or three of the fundamentals here. One is about communicating well telling great stories all the way through to get not just the 80 or 100 involved, but the organization. It's about pulling people together to explore. There are no answers other than the answers that they give. Our role is purely facilitative in this stage. And we might run up to 10 or 12 events for 20 people at a time to try and really get some options. And we then have rather a fun process of pulling people together or those options together with the board and other people to what we call blend and come up with the ultimate solution. We then test that. Can it be measured in the organization? Does the organization commit to it? What is the final answer from their perspective in order to then align the strategy? And where it works absolutely brilliantly is where the strategic intent is being developed at the same time as the cultural intent. So if we can combine those two and overlap them in the application within the organization, you suddenly got a very powerful concoction of opportunity. So there are many ways of doing this, as many people will know, but that principle of giving it over to them, running some events, getting to a point where there's an answer, and then taking your time around communication to connect to the organization before leading into a process of embedding and measuring all of which takes an initial probably four or five months of intensity mark followed by another year of alignment to the strategy setting up the measurement processes and systems and of course celebrating because there's a lot of great success that comes out of it i mean i think one cause of success is for the leaders then to go back you know and to your previous question the leaders have got tough decisions to make at that point because people may not fit or structures may not fit. And of course, there are some tough decisions to make on the way through. So I I hope that just gives you a flavour. So 18 months, really, overall. Presumably, it's an ongoing process that you can't be just something you do it and say it's everything's fixed. It's something you just keep working at forever. And is that why you build in these measurables so that they can be monitored going forward and then the thing can sail off? But presumably, if you don't monitor it, you can drift off track. Yeah, I mean, we're simply helping the chief executive or the organization build itself a ship. Where they take the ship, what they do with the ship, we can help them steer the ship if they want it. But 
it's really important that they take ownership of the whole proposition, the purpose, the values, the strategic intent, because the world is moving so fast that they have to put in these reflective processes that allow them to keep the ship on course as they go. Whether they want us to help them or not is a different decision. When you're getting that quorum, that hard core of 80 to 100 main sort of change makers within the organization to set up the new constitution effectively, do you have to try and avoid just seeking people who are all going to say yes? Is there any way you try and find people who who are sort of naysayers? Do you actively seek those out or do you deliberately ignore them? <laughs> There's a voice of experience to go with the voice of insurance. Eh? We definitely want people who may have a different view of the world without a shadow of a doubt. You've got to get the broadest church you can have to garner the best answer. And uh, without doubt, every time we go into this process, we look for people that will create, let's call it a challenge, politely. And I think it's important that the organisation itself knows that those people are involved in the process as well, because typically, not all the time, but typically they switch and they see the opportunity that comes through this process for them to really make a contribution to the organisation and you know, life's boring if everyone's the same. And I think vibrant organisations do have positive debate and they should have. Sometimes it goes over the top. Sometimes uh, it's not there, but it should be there. That's great. I think you've got my number as being one of those people, John. <laughs> what's the most important first step if anyone's a leader listening out here? What's their most important step? Is it really just to realise that they do need to change or that or they need to have a plan? For me, if a leader wants to change the, the organisation that, that they're responsible for. It's understanding that there's just a huge opportunity if they address culture, a massive opportunity to create a surge in energy in the organisation to make that person's job a lot easier, quite frankly, to give people the understanding of, Edward mentioned the ship, where's this ship going and why is it going there? And their job on this ship is to do that. And they're in that particular part of that ship and pulling the oil that way. Why are they doing that? And it makes it life a lot more gives a lot more meaning to their jobs and when people have meaning in their lives they tend to work harder and want to perform and are proud of where they work and that's always been the case since day dot in business and I think it's accentuated today with the nature of work coming out of COVID and the the younger people today uh, want that and expect that from their leadership so uh, it's about the leaders just seeing this as an opportunity not as a drag it's an opportunity to sail faster not to sail slower. Maybe I think particularly the insurance industry, and we've seen it in others, but there is change on the way. We talked earlier on about the amount of change that was potentially coming, not just driven by COVID, but by modernization, by ESG, by DNI and and, and all of that. And actually, I think there's a real risk that some do get not get left behind, but are certainly in the slipstream of those that, you know, that that step in and, and recognize the opportunity that you've talked about. While I've got both of you on, on the line, I think it's really useful to bust some of the jargon that gets thrown around. I've been hearing a lot about the words building resilience, or the, the phrase building resilience within organisations and the individuals that work within them. Within your context, what do we really mean by this when we're applying that to insurance? We've um, spent the last three or four years very active in this area. We saw this coming over the horizon about 2017. And for the last year, in fact, we've been working heavily with Travis Perkins, with a thousand of their leaders, helping them gain a common understanding of what resilience is around the notion of, a, of your mindset, your body, how you handle emotion and how you handle problems in the context of work and, quite frankly, their home lives. It's definitely a very serious subject. It's not 
a fad. I don't think it's here today and gone tomorrow. It's very important from a perspective of humanity, looking after your people, and also from a perspective of performance, getting the best out of your people. If people are fitter, aligned, more confident, have a better support structure, conversations can happen openly and honestly, and there's no bravado flying around, then people tend to uh, improve their performance and improve their happiness at work. And and quite frankly, sometimes uh, that goes back home as well, because uh, people who are happy at home are going to be uh, happy at work, typically. So I think it's been accentuated with COVID, but we see this as being around for a long time, resilience. And that's why we work with a psychometric called the RQI out of the University of Westminster. It's fantastic. And it's the base of all our programs uh, that we offer around resilience. So resilience, it's really that holistic idea of work-life balance, my physical and mental well-being and bringing all of that to work. It's, a, it's a really something that stitches everything together. Yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, the six components of it, which I mentioned, one is your purpose and your sense of fulfillment. And there's your mindset and how you handle emotions, how you handle problems, how you handle relationships and what's termed your physiology, which to laymen like us is your sleep and your fitness and your diet. I think we can all do better in those three departments. I know I certainly can. But it's a very basic definition of resilience there, which is measured, which is academically normed. So that common language that I've just mentioned around emotion, relationships, problems, mindset, is simple English that people can use in their organisation to assess the level of resilience they have in their organisation and indeed individuals. But there's no doubt about it. If you invest in resilience and you have that level of capability, it enables you to understand how far the organization can push and knowing when not to push. And for any listeners who are not based in the UK, Travis Perkins is the UK's largest builders merchant. An organization to go through this process puts in an investment in time. What sort of return are they likely to see on that investment? I think there's two sides to this coin. One is, if you don't do something, there's a danger of apathy around your current situation it may feel good but actually have you tested your current situation in the marketplace in the external marketplace one of my great mentors always said change is always a good thing and so whilst one mustn't overplay it i guess your question is why is it a good thing and of course there's a cost up front that four months of intensity is around cost but just to try and bring some of that value you know psychologically people start to engage more, not just with their own teams, but across the organization. And what that does is it generates new ideas. And there's a lot of research that says that innovation is fivefold better when people talk across the organization. So the generation of new ideas. Leaders are given many more options and they plan better, which means that their decision-making becomes better, that allows them to make better decisions, not just on their own behalf, but on the behalf of those around them aligned to the star of the stable, as John described. And better decision-making, of course, leads to better performance. In human resource terms, the engagement measure, which for 20 years has been levels of engagement, we know that those engagement levels have increased hugely by up to 30% as a result of a performance like this, which in turn produces less churn for people. So, you know, we've talked about 21% churn in over three clients that we've used or less churn and also of course there is a a reality though that some people don't like to be aligned to an ambition and therefore you may get a few people who leave but very often they're the people you don't want in the long term and if they leave of their own accord clearly it costs you less than having to get rid of them in some other way but I think the positive piece around value mark 
is that, as John intimated too earlier, you get a really positive, energetic mindset anyway in the leadership and beyond to be able to do things quicker, to be able to prioritize better, to not waste time on things that are not relevant to the ambition, which ultimately dropped into a very profit-led performance increment. So I hope that, John, you may have something else to say around value, but that's certainly where we um, you know, put most of our effort. I would just add to that. It's far easier to win with a team that wants to win than with eight people on a team that want to win and three that don't. I'm a northerner, as you probably gathered, and I like to uh, keep things quite simple. And I've been lucky to play quite a bit of sport and work on the front line of organisations for 30 years. And having a team that wants to win and knows why they've got to win is so much fun and great memories and uh, excellent uh, reward at the end of it too. So it's all about these are often intangible benefits, but some of them are tangible and measurable in terms of less churn, higher engagement. Yeah. But it's all about getting the team together is the most important thing and perhaps identifying some of the team who've got a different strategy. And as Edward mentioned it, I think uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a bad discussion to have with someone. It's a very adult conversation to have. And quite frankly, we're only on this planet for a short number of years. So my attitude towards it, and I, I hope this is shared by your listeners, is that we've got to enjoy your work. And there's no point being in an organisation if you're clearly unhappy. And why not have another conversation? You clearly don't want to be there anymore. The organization's going in a direction that you don't agree with. So why don't you go to an organization where you will be happy? And everybody benefits that that way. It enables a level of honesty and clarity so people can just move on quickly. Now that John and Edward have set out their stall, I think it's time we heard from Steve Hearn at Corrent to see how this works in practice. Steve, thank you so much for breaking out of your really busy schedule to, to speak to me. Tell us about the culture process you went through to create Corrent. Yes, thanks, Mark, and thanks for the invitation as well. So one of the things we, we recognised was a need to create an identity for the Topco, that that was important. The businesses within our group had their own unique identities built over decades in some cases, more recent in other cases, but a need really for us to create some common themes and threads across the organisation by creating some identity around the current brand as we launched that brand and felt rather than trying to change the identifiable features of the cultures of the underlying businesses of Ed and Besso, et cetera, that actually we'd run a process to create, as I say, this sort of view of what is common, what are the things that we want to be common. So we engaged Delta V, John Fay and his business and his team to help us. I'd used them before as an organization, I'd used them at Willis been introduced to them by a, a senior colleague at Willis who'd used them at a big bank, big retail bank. I was hugely impressed by what they did for us at Willis. And so it was a fairly easy connection to get out and get some help as we went through this important process. So your mission really for Corrent was to take all the best parts and the best identifiable features and core strengths of your underlying businesses and really articulate them and then to get everyone to really buy into it as a group? I think it's different. They run a very different process than I've experienced perhaps at some other places I've worked, Mark. And it really truly is a process that tries to pull out from the organisation what people think. It's not top-down. It's not not me or or the executive sitting in, a, in an ivory tower coming up with what we think the organization should be about, what we think is important to the organization. But rather, 
you engage a significant part of the total population in a detailed process where they drive out what is important to them, rather than it being what's the best bit of Besso or the best bit of Ed and how do you bring the two together, the process actually drives out some unique features. Yes, common things, obviously, so that they can identify with the underlying businesses in terms of the headlines, but really a unique set of ingredients for the top coat in the organization. What's it like working with Delta V? My time speaking to them, I suppose people have a sort of conception of what a consultant, what a culture change consultant is going to be. And probably as probably naturally as British people, we probably slightly negative perception of that or slightly scared of what that might be, but there's something a bit sort of woolly. But certainly in my experience of speaking to John and his team, it's not like that at all, that they seem to be very, very down to earth, very straightforward and very practical. So was that your experience with them? Mark, exactly my experience. And, and I'm certainly in the camp that you describe of those British or otherwise that probably don't naturally lean towards consultants, but, but nevertheless recognize on occasion you need experts, right? And this is something creating and defining culture um, and properly embedding it in an organization is not the stuff of amateurs. Even our leadership team even claim to be experts. So a reach into an organization to help us to guide us in terms of the process, because, it, you know, as I said, the content is created by us, not by them. But the process of establishing the content is very much driven by them. And yes, I find John and Edward and the team very pragmatic. And obviously, this time around, they're now not learning about the London insurance market or even the insurance market. They have some expertise in terms of our peculiarities and uh, attributes. So even more direct in bringing us to the right answers. Yeah, I think they're a good cultural fit. So how long has this kind of process taken? What sort of an investment? Obviously, it's quite a fundamental thing you're trying to do. Obviously, it must be fundamentally important to you as a leader of your business to get this right. But what sort of an investment in your time is this? That's the big thing, right? So in in embarking upon something like this, it is an investment of time. And we engaged, ultimately, all 950 of our employees around the world, every office, every employee in this process. And that's taking them away from their day job. The executive attended many, many sessions around the world in this format, obviously. And that, frankly, is just the first phase. You go through this process of the creation of a leadership message with your people and create something that they have engaged in and created together and a process that creates advocates of those messages, of those core themes. But if that's all you do, you're back into the trap of some nice words on a wall, on a poster, and everybody forgets about it some months later. So actually, the time commitment, the investment, as you describe, is absolutely the correct word, continues. In fact, the the creation of the leadership message is really just the start, because then you need to run your business to those cultural pillars that you've created. And, And the way I've seen it operate successfully is that any key decision you make in your organization, you're bringing out and referencing your leadership messages in terms of how that fits within the organization that our colleagues have defined they want to work for. Very significant investment in time. Now that you've been through the process and you've done this twice, obviously, and you've gone back because you're pleased with what they did the first time, what are the results that you can see now sitting as a business leader? What are the results you've seen? Is there anything measurable or tangible? Yeah, in the case of Corrent Group, this is a Q4 last year sort of uh, visibility. It started earlier than that. 
And then through Q1 of this year, we start to get those messages out to our colleagues framed within the context, as I said, of the leadership message. So in the very early stages of now embedding the work that was done last year into this year and the organization as we go forward. But there's a constant check on how we're doing. There's the formality of survey and seeing how people felt about the process, what they took from the process. And then one of the most powerful things I think and found both at Willis and here is this is a very, very public process. So everybody is holding the leadership to account all the time in terms of what we said. And if you deviate from the path, if there's something that our colleagues can't resonate with the messages that were created, with the work that was done, they call you out. So it's a very powerful sort of uh, requirement to continue to work to it. And then, yes, we'll go back in time later this year and resurvey, look at how people are now feeling about how we're performing against the pillars that were created. And you go through this process of connecting the individuals, their teams, the business units that they sit in back to the leadership message. And it's a constant validation and checking process. What advice would you give to anyone who's listened to this and thinking of starting a similar sort of process within their own organization? I'd probably say an answer which would start with a negative, right? So I wouldn't do what I've also seen in other organizations, which is where the CEO comes up with the answer. And the communications and HR departments send out desk drops and put posters on walls and expect everybody to march to the same tune. It just, in my experience, and I've been involved in organizations who've done that, it just doesn't work. The opportunity to engage with people, as many people as possible, as many people in the organization, for them to have a very, very honest conversation about what they seek why this could be more than just somewhere you turn up to work and pick up a paycheck at the end of the month. What are the things that are really important to them? The only way to find that out is to actually talk to them. And you get some surprising answers, some things that, you know, we'll have a different view because we sit in different environments and and have different experiences. And 55 years old this year, Mark, I know that will surprise you, but uh, 30 years in the industry, you, you arrive with your own views. Whereas the views of a broader constituent, a more diverse constituent in every sense, perhaps gives you a better answer. So engage. And in our case, that's what Delta V did for us. They have a very effective methodology to enable people to engage and for the leadership to get the truth, the real answer in terms of what I think that people are thinking. And at times that's pretty brutal. You know, we walk around with this very very gilded view of our world and how brilliant we are at running our businesses and leading them, right? And this process may not confirm that, maybe give you some things, some, some home truths that really you need to identify with and do some work on to create something that works for people. And so that's where the, having the third party in there, the consultant in there, is, is this sort of honest broker for that situation? Oh, honest broker, but also sort of an arm around the shoulder of the executive as you go through the experience. As I said, I've been through it once before, so I sort of knew what was coming down the track. But a couple of colleagues, you know, who part of the Delta V role is to say, no, it's okay, that's okay that they think that. And better you hear it than they think it and don't hear it, and you don't hear it. Better you understand it. The next thing you hear about it is when they're handing their resignation letter. Right, right. Well, you get some strong indicators of what people are really thinking. I should say some of that's very good and very encouraging, very supportive and rewarding. Some of it points in the direction of some challenges. 
But again, Delta V are very good at getting that out of people and getting people to feel comfortable in front of their leaders because you're sitting in the room, virtual room with them as they talk about what isn't working. Just on a wider industry point, we're in the middle of quite a lot of cultural change and probably faster cultural change than we've ever seen before in the London market. But that's not necessarily saying anything because perhaps we had very, very slow culture change before. What's your sense, Steve, of the scale of the challenge for the global wholesale specialty insurance and reinsurance market of that cultural change to be fit to rise to the challenge that is clearly coming? Well, I'm really encouraged, actually, is my perspective on that. We've known for some years, you and I've talked about it for some years, that there's been a need for significant change in the way that we operate, in the diversity in our marketplace, in our skill sets, etc. And we've known that that needed to happen. I think if there's a significant positive out of the horror of the last year, we have proven as a workforce to be incredibly agile. Right? I mean, it's remarkable. And if you look at our industry relative to some of our clients' industries, look at the way we've embraced you know, fundamental change in our work practices and the way we've been able to cooperate and work together in driving solutions for customers in incredibly challenging circumstances beyond anything any of us could have imagined. And we've done it. We've done it successfully. Our industry has, in some parts, not even just survived, but thrived certainly in London specialty insurance and reinsurance market. So that's encouraging. I think there is a resilience that has been proven again and an agility, perhaps in a way that we haven't had to have in in decades, proven in a very, very short period of time. And that sets us up well. So please, let's not revert back to the way we were. Let's use that as a foundation for further change in our industry and as the leaders of our industry through their various associations connect. I hope they're very focused. I'm sure they are very focused on how we use that moment to capitalize and accelerate ahead further change. But I think it's good. I feel good about where we are. We're getting a crisis and should grasp the nettle that that crisis has now sort of thrown up at us rather than have to wait for the next crisis before we do anything again. (laughs) Which, you know, is possible, but I certainly hope not. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Now we've heard about Steve's experience, let's get back to a final word of wisdom from John Fay. Sometimes we've only just scratched the surface that we know there's a huge amount of work to be done, probably in all sectors, but we also know in the the insurance sector in particular, given the challenges that, that are facing us, the cultural challenges and the change challenges we've got. So if anyone's listening here today and they could only take one takeaway from this podcast, what would that be? Well, we've talked a lot, haven't we, uh, Mark? But uh, I would suggest that uh, the notion of leaders operating out there in the market with a sense of purpose, and that purpose is shared with all their colleagues. And at all times, that's the star over the stable and have faith in it and trust people and lead your people with that star and let them fly. That's what I would ask people to take away from this because it's that letting people off the reins, trusting them, knowing that they know where the organisation is going and what it stands for and they can feel safe in it and they can feel proud in it and then get the uh, guys and girls on the pitch and see what they can do against the opposition. So you've got to get everyone involved. That's the thing. It can't just be about you and your bonus then. And you're not going to get your bonus if you don't effectively share share how you're going to get there with everybody else. It's a team game. I don't know any brokers or underwriters out there with one person in them. 
So uh, it's a team game and clients want to see that team as well. And they want to see the people that are behind the broker or the underwriter. And uh, it's an opportunity. That's the way I look at all of this. It's a real opportunity for organizations to win. And that's not a bad thing, is it? And win the right way and be remembered the right way for it. So if anyone's listening and wants to follow up, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? We are on the website. There's a, an email address, info at deltavpartners.com. If you drop a line on there, that'll eventually feed its way through to Edward and I. We'll be delighted to answer any inquiries you've got and uh, have a chat. All the contact details are going to be on the podcast notes accompanying the podcast. Well, thank you so much, John and Edward. I've really, really enjoyed our chat. Good luck with everything. And it sounds like there's a lot more work to be done. And I'm sure we'll be, we'll be seeing you around soon. Well, thanks for having us on, uh, Mark. Really appreciate it. And uh, it's a real honour to work in this sector. It has been a time at Willis and at uh, Corrin. And uh, look forward to hopeful uh, more opportunities. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.